Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, as we enter the battleground of film award season, we're pleased to have as our honored guest, Pete Hammond, widely considered to be one of the preeminent awards analysts for both film and television in the world, and for the past 11 years, Deadline Entertainment's chief film critic. Pete has previously reviewed films for Movie Line, Box Office Magazine, Backstage, Hollywood.com, and Maxim. He was also a contributing editor to Leonard Maltin's Movie Guide, as well as being the host of the KCET Los Angeles Cinema Series and the weekly KCET television series, Must See Movies. Pete and I go all the way back to when he produced for Entertainment Tonight, and I was a publicist for the studios. Additionally, he has been nominated for five writing Emmys. Welcome, Pete. Hi. How are you, Steve? <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. You know, it's funny. Um, I'm a pretty enthusiastic movie lover. And I think if I was to match myself up with the most enthusiastic movie <laughs> lover in this town, it would have to be Pete Hammond. There we are. Yeah, we're both the same person, actually. Grew up in L.A., knew all those West L.A. theaters. Uh, which Which one was your go-to theater when you were little? Well, when I was little, before we moved to the South Bay, uh, it was the uh, in Westwood. It, it was the Pickwood was the closest one to me, uh, which then became, you know, right the corner of Westwood Boulevard and Pico. It's where Landmark was. And I've been around long enough to see the Pickwood come and go and the Landmark come and go. And now it's going to be, I, I just found out UCLA is going to take over that space. But um, are they going to keep the theaters? No, I don't I don't think so. You know, they just took over. Speaking of Westwood theaters, the Crest Westwood um, is now open. It's called the Nimoy because Leonard Nimoy put all the money behind it. And uh, so that theater has survived. But my real go to theaters uh, had to have been the village in the Bruin in Westwood, um, you know, from a young sure. age. You and I probably were in the theater when they showed the double feature Dr. No and From Russia with Love oh, after the release of Goldfinger. <laughs> it may well have been i you know i i i once when i saw goldfish the um the my earliest memory of the pickwood was 1959 i saw the mysterians there ah. and i remember a, a, a line of around the block which was emulated a year later when they released the time machine 1960 <laughs> so wow. those were great memories great theaters i remember the big thing with the pickwood was they introduced those rocking seats uh -huh. later on. <laughs> when, they, when they remodeled it, yeah. When, when they, they remodeled became a first run became a first-run theater to challenge the other ones, when Westwood was the hot movie-going town. Right. And right. the Pickwood, and I went to, uh, I think the first one I saw there in the new Pickwood was Petulia in 1968. Oh, Julie sure. Christie. Yeah. They used yeah. to have, it's funny, the Pickwood would often have a major studio preview uh, oh yeah and you know sneak a sneak preview which of course sneak previews are unknown now to most audiences but you you it was really potluck you never knew what you could get and i, I went all the time all the time to sneaks and all over town uh sure. lakewood um uh, lakewood center was a big one uh there and i just interviewed erwin winkler uh recently in fact it's on deadline now 
Um, and uh, I brought my preview card from a movie he had produced early in his career. I never threw away the preview cards. I never turned them in. I just kept the card. You know, I like souvenirs. And it was a movie no one will even remember. Actually, Jackie Bissett's in it called Believe in Me. But um, uh, he goes, what? is that i said it's the preview card man <laughs> yeah i i love that kind of stuff i saw hell in the pacific at the pickwood too on a oh, seven wow. seven day oscar qualifying run that did them no good because they got nothing but yeah. nothing and then i saw a sneak preview of quick before it melts ah I, george I, maharis <laughs> with the penguin <laughs> <laughs> well you know pete you know they're they say that Costco, by the way, is the epicenter of American commercial business, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think in many ways, you kind of are the epicenter of the state of movies today in many ways, because you're on the line every day. Yeah. Before we get into a, dis a discussion of some of the Oscar-worthy movies this year, uh, what is your feeling kind of overall about the state of movie making today, because obviously the streamers have soaked up a lot of the ink and the movie, the movies, they, the studios still seem to be obsessed with franchise movies. And as the listeners know, I rail about this weekly about save some room for some originals. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what do you, what do you think is the future now that we've entered 2024? Well, I think Hollywood should have learned their lesson, but they never do, uh, from Barbenheimer uh, last summer with Barbie and Oppenheimer, both opening on the same day, July 21st, and wildly different audiences, but somehow it connected, it became an event, and it's because, you know what, in the middle of summer, uh, studios expect only sequels, prequels, known uh, quantities, but here's a three-hour drama from Christopher Nolan, about nuclear physics and things and <laughs> atom bombs and all kinds of uh, part of it in black and white. And here's Barbie, which was, you know, a real long shot to make that a smart movie. But they did because they were original and they had original thinking by them and they didn't, uh, you know, downgrade the audience and, and they trusted the audience might like that kind of quality. So it's the biggest movies of, you know, Oppenheimer's almost a billion dollars a billion dollars worldwide for a three hour adult drama. And Barbie, of course, the biggest movie of the year, all of them all over the award season too. Uh, it proves to me that you're right. You should rant about original, but will they learn the lesson? Let's look at what's coming out next year or in the next year after that. It's all franchises, it's all sequels. It's all Marvel and Marvel's been bombing lately, you know, compared to what they were once and things like that. People are starving for it. So I agree with you. I, I think that uh, if you make it and you make it smart and uh, they will sniff it out and they will come and they will like that experience and they will want to do that some more because they seem to be turning uh, a little bit on the whole Marvel model, the comic book superhero model, all of that stuff. Uh, it, you get tired after a while. And, and, you, and you know, Hollywood's full of uh, different trends and uh, you think, well, this is going to stay forever, but it's not. And uh, unfortunately, the business has changed to such a degree that the executives and everything can only sit in meetings and sell something they've already sold. And, you know. To movies as toothpaste. 
Yeah. You know, it's funny. You We were talking earlier about our first movie theater experiences in West L.A. You know, in those days, the studios, they throw a bone to the kids every year. You know, maybe you'd get a seventh voyage of Sinbad or maybe you'd get a time machine. Yeah. Now I would argue that the only bones that people are getting are kids movies. That, that that's true. Uh, this time of year in the fall and the winter with Oscars and egos running rampant in Hollywood, they're th they throw the bone they throw is to the adults and they throw a prestige kind of killers of the flower moon or something like that, uh, you know, uh, to get Oscar attention and maybe, you know, uh, get critical acclaim. But as you know, it really used to be that uh, the uh, movies you were mentioning and all of those, uh, Jason and the Argonauts and those kinds of things were kids' movies. They were never taken seriously by Hollywood and they were just there, double features, always when they open, never first run kind of exclusives. It's flipped. The whole way has flipped of the way Hollywood used to be and what it turned out. And you know, I don't even think sequels came into vogue really until mid 70s with jaws and different movies that changed changed the business forever really sure yeah. i threw up a picture of killers of the flower moon with mr scorsese and the leading actress yeah um this is a three and a half hour movie yeah. i i have to confess i have not seen it yet uh, but it's certainly soaking up a lot of interest in the awards situation uh can you give us an overall impression of the film well, I think, you know, Scorsese's, you know, a master. There's no question. And, and this is an interesting movie because it's based on David Grant's book. I don't know if you've read the book, um, but it's shorter than the movie. But it's um, uh, it was about the uh, invention of uh, the uh, uh, beginnings of the FBI. And uh, and really, the movie started out to have Leonardo DiCaprio play this FBI agent that comes in to investigate uh, these murders of all these Native American women here who had struck gold. It's like the movie Giant and James Dean just struck gold on property nobody wanted and nobody thought was anything. And all of a sudden, they're filthy rich. But the white people led by Robert De Niro, who pretended uh, like Donald Trump, he was their best friend, uh, <laughs> when in fact, <laughs> he was a grifter going to con them out of this by getting people like Leo, who's now playing his nephew, um, to go in and marry uh, one of them. And and they, they got other white men to marry into these families, then kill off the uh, women. And, um, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting. Uh, one of my favorite Jimmy Stewart movies, the FBI story. Yeah. Has <laughs> a segment on this very same story. Oh, isn't that amazing? Yes. I, I forgot that. But yeah, because this is a kind of a forgotten kind of a historical moment, but absolutely happened a hundred years ago. And, um, you know, uh, Juneteenth is celebrated uh, around that time. And what happened on Juneteenth and this were sort of interconnected in a weird way in Oklahoma and, and, and around that part of the country. Um, but it's very well made. It is three and a half hours. It's a long thing. They halfway through Martin Scorsese, who was writing the screenplay decided with Leo, that it was going in the wrong direction. They thought the uh, story of the Native Americans and what they were going through was better and more integral to what they wanted to do. And so they uh, they changed it around and made the FBI story kind of come into the second half and, um, you know, and be peripheral to it. Sure, sure. 
what's the um, uh, I know the movie has struggled a little bit at the box office, probably because of its length. Um, what's Doesn't matter. Apple made the movie. Apple's, you know, this is just fodder for Apple. True. They've got all the money in the world, the streamers and things. And I'll give give applause to Apple for giving it a theatrical run with Paramount, uh, full blown theatrical run. But it's difficult, you know, to, uh, to do movies like that. Uh, they did the same thing with Napoleon as well. That's also Apple's film. But they they uh, teamed up with Sony and uh, gave that a theatrical. And then that's the way these pictures should be seen on the big screen. No oh, problem. absolutely. Uh, yeah. in you know in in earlier decades the perception of the motion picture academy was it was a a bunch of older white people who voted very very conservatively and loved historical movies that's why you see a lot of best pictures being historical films like bridge on the river kwai and braveheart uh those kinds of films schindler's list um do you think the younger academy now the more diverse academy is a little different in their cho choices I think so. Uh, the Academy uh, over the past few years has uh, gone in a program of diversifying its membership. Uh, listening to that LA Times article of a few years ago that said 61% of it is old white males and um, and deciding to go more international. And so they're much more global now. They have a bigger more international footprint, which is why you see nominations for Best Director almost every year have at least one slot for a, a foreign filmmaker. Um, and uh, I think you're going to see an increasing kind of thing there with the international kind of movies getting in uh, where they didn't, you know, in the best picture race this year. I, I think you're going to see Anatomy of a Fall. That's from France. Justine Trier it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. I think you're going to see Past Lives, uh, which is an American movie, but it's uh, half of it's in Korean. And I think you're going to see a brilliant movie called The Zone of Interest, which is from a British filmmaker, Jonathan Glazer, premiered at Cannes and came in second uh, in, in their awards, won the grand prize. An amazing movie, a, a Holocaust movie. You might want to call it that, but it's like unlike one I've ever seen before. It focuses on the German family and the family of the commandant of Auschwitz uh, right across, living right across from Auschwitz. But all you see in the background are smoke coming from there and faint screams and things going on across their beautiful paradise where they live and where a different kind of life is going on. It's like harrowing, harrowing. Oh my, I've been hearing a lot about it. Absolutely. All right, let's look at Oppenheimer. I mean, Oppenheimer, uh, as you pointed out, is, is a big, big international hit. Um, given that it's an odd choice for a billion dollar winner. What do you, do you, do you think <laughs> the main reason for its success? It was like an outlier. It was the anti-Marvel movie. Uh, it, well, that may be part of it. It's also good. And, uh, you know, Christopher Nolan has such a following that they, it's a case of a filmmaker where they're going to just follow this guy anywhere. And uh, he takes them into interesting places now. I know Dunkirk you know, you being the expert on all things war movies and everything, uh, he went and did that as a very personal movie. Uh, and then this is his movie, you know, uh, then he did Tenet, but that got caught up in the pandemic and, and on a, you know, Max and a streamer it led to his exit from Warner Brothers to Universal, which basically gave him a blank check to do whatever he wanted, which he pretty much had at Warner Brothers, but they came up with this, 
movie about J. Robert Oppenheimer, who really is the architect of the atomic bomb, and part of it in, in black and white about Senate hearings and things. And it's a movie really that doesn't give you the big thing at the end with the big explosions and dropping it on Japan. You don't really see that. It's much more intellectual. It's three hours. And uh, it opened in the middle of summer when, you know, he'd be more comfortable, you would think, with Batman. That was his good luck date, by the way, July 21st. But it was discovered by audiences with a little help uh, just by happenstance that people just tied it into Barbie opening and it became an event because they were two movies the public didn't know what to make of because they were original, like we were saying. And uh, and so that marketing uh, thing uh, by accident helped propel it, I think, as well. Once people saw it, though, they were blown away by it. And I would say across all demos uh, here. Uh, well, I would think that Celian Murphy is uh, a lock for a best Oscar uh, a nomination actor. Yes, uh, he is a, a lock without question. And I think Robert Downey Jr. Uh, for supporting um, and uh, possibly, uh, you know, maybe a couple of others. Emily Blunt uh, in supporting actress. These races are tight this year, these acting races. Uh, somebody really good is going to get cut out. They're just that's just going to happen. And because uh, I have a feeling it might be Joaquin Phoenix for Napoleon. There's some uh, idea. <laughs> I'll, I, I, I will uh, take you on that one. I, I'm right with you on that. I, that would be a shocker if that happened. But I thought he, well, he looks just like Napoleon from what my. Yeah, but he should have spent a few more moments in French class. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Whatever. But I, I, know. I, I, I want to. You know, I'm a big Ridley Scott fan, so I've got to yeah. go see it, even though. I've heard it's a, a bit, uh, it tests your metal a little bit. It does. I, I was entertained by it. Actually, I'll tell you, Vanessa Kirby as Josephine, I thought was killer in this. She's really good. I wish they had more of the initial thing was going to be Napoleon and Josephine. That was the initial title. And then they made, decided to make it more about him. And, you know, I saw Ridley. I did a Q&A with him at the Bruin Westwood um, for House of Gucci. And I, I said, what, what's next? And he says, oh. I'm going to do Napoleon. He couldn't wait. You know, it was just a, a little ways off uh, to start of shooting. And he says, I've got, he went like this. I've got six battles, you know, six battles. And <laughs> he has six battles. So it's pretty amazing. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, and he's very good with action, as as we all know, from Gladiator, et cetera. Um, he's doing Gladiator well, 2 right now. He's shooting that. Right, right. Which I can't wait to see that. Now, obviously, another movie that's getting a lot of attention is Bradley Cooper's Maestro, uh, which um, is, is just, well, it's obviously a fascinating subject. What's your take on Maestro? I love Maestro. It's, uh, you know, first of all, the music is great. It's It's inventively used, too. It's not a linear standard biopic of Leonard Bernstein but rather a love story, a very um, unconventional love story with his wife, uh, Felicia, who's a, an actress, but didn't have the kind of renown that Leonard, Lenny Bernstein did. But it is Bernstein, warts and all, and this marriage, and in it is the music. But it's not like, and then I did West Side Story, and then I did Candide, it, because West Side Story turns up over an unrelated scene and you hear a lot of the key music from West Side Story playing. Same thing with his score, film score for On the Waterfront. Has nothing to do with On the Waterfront 
being um, talked about in the film, but shows up as they're uh, on a family outing and, you know, somewhere else. So, I mean, it's very different uh, in the way he approached it. And he wrote it, co-wrote it with Josh Singer, uh, directed it, produced it with Steven Spielberg. Martin Scorsese, by the way, is also a producer on it because he was going to do it originally. Steven Spielberg's on it because he was going to do it. And then they looked for a, another director and Bradley put his hat in the ring and did a great job uh, with it on all, all of that and starring in it as well as he did on his first uh, directorial film, A Star is Born. But um, I thought he was spectacular in this. Now it's Netflix. So it's on Netflix. It played in theaters for a month, you know, limited. And then, uh, you know, now it's there. And, you know, the sad thing, Steve, is at a streamer, you know, they're more interested in, you know, these commercial things, the audience seems to be, because it was like on their chart of their top 10, which they now put out for like four days, four days, and then it's off the top 10. So it's not being watched as much as, you know, uh, Zack Snyder's latest opus, uh, Rebel Moon, or things like that. Um, and well, Brad uh, Bradley Bradley seems to have taken to directing like a duck to water. Uh, in talking yeah. to him, you get the impression that directing will be a major part of his career. Oh yeah, I think he's got so many smart ideas. He's really enthusiastic about it. He throws himself into this, you know. And uh, and he makes really quality movies. The Maestro is bound to be nominated uh, in several categories. Uh, I should mention Carrie Mulligan is incredible here uh, as Felicia as well. The two of them, they're up for uh, all kinds of awards already. So we'll see how it goes. You know, I have a guy that comes over every now and then, you know, at our age, sometimes you want a physical therapist to move in. And uh, <laughs> so I, when I had a leg problem, I got addicted to this guy and he still comes in and does things. I always have something for him to do. He watched it and he's going, eh, I watched um, Maestro, but I turned it off. I just fell asleep after a while. It's in black and white. And I go, no, it's not. The first 40 minutes are in black and white. <laughs> it it does become a color movie after. And then I'm thinking, wow, he may be typical of viewers who are going like, oh, I don't know about this movie, you know, and it's that dreaded black and white and <laughs> and all of that. It's and funny I think because with my kids, when they were little, I would I would say, you know, let, let's watch the day the earth stood still. And the minute <laughs> they saw it was in black and white, nah, nah, and they thought it was like like something from the Dust Bowl era. <laughs> <laughs> I love black and white movies, especially oh, I've, scope, I've, I, cinema scope in black. Oh and white. yeah, I mean, in in really embracing Eddie Muller on TCM and his love of noir, oh, you noir. really come to appreciate those wonderful black and white films. I, you know, how can we not do 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 with them? Um, now, a movie that is getting a lot of attention and a, supposedly is a very fun movie is this movie, The Holdovers. Yeah, I love it. And I'm hearing a lot of things that are uh, good about that. Is it is it is it an audience movie or is it an awards movie? I think it's both. I think it's that rare thing. It's also a 70s movie, believe it or not. Alexander Payne, who directed it, uh, has done eight films. Only two of them did he not write or have a screenplay credit on. Uh, he's all and he's won two Oscars for writing um, in, in screenplay categories. But this one, uh, David Hemmingson is the writer he hired to do his idea, which is based on a 1930s French film called uh, Melus, 
Uh, and it's about um, a, a kid being held over uh, over the holidays in a boarding school. And it's this uh, kind of makeshift family. That was the gist of the idea. And that is really what The Holdovers is about. Paul Giamatti plays uh, a kind of curmudgeon -y, uh adjunct professor uh, who, uh, you know, gives a lot of D pluses. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, Davine Joy Randolph, who's just cleaning up on the supporting actress circuit, uh, so far now, um, uh, plays the, uh, you know, the, uh, school employee cook and all of that. And she stays after she had lost her husband in the war or his son, her son. And, um, and she's alone and he's alone. And the kid who, family basically abandons him. The mother got remarried and they want their own vacation. So they don't bring him home for the holidays. So it's so so really... this is a period piece? Yes. It's Alexander Payne's first period piece set in 1971. And he's made it look like with the film grain, even the ratings thing at the beginning of movies is like the one from that uh year. Um the whole feel of the score by Mark Orton feels like something Fred Carlin might have done. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> it's really meant to evoke that era of Hal Ashby movies, like The Last Detail and um, uh, that kind of thing. And um, But it stands on its own, too, as a very smart um, holiday movie, if you want. It's it's a really good Christmas movie that'll go on seasonally. But it's not that. It's, it's just about uh, a makeshift family basically, and these three people who come together so smart, so funny, and entertaining, and heartfelt, and all of those things, but um, Alexander Payne, you know, who did uh, Sideways, was last thing uh, that he had done with Paul Giamatti, and Nebraska, and About Schmidt, and uh down, down, downsizing was a favorite down, from a couple years ago downsizing which paul giamatti told me recently in an interview he was originally going to do but it didn't work out so it took them 20 years to finally get something together again downsizing was his most expensive movie by the way pains and his biggest flop in terms of box office oh that's too bad because it's a very inventive movie and for the yeah. viewers if you ever want to spend a nice saturday afternoon just rent or find, I'm sure it's available on one of the services, Downsizing, which is yeah. maybe one of the most clever movies I've seen in years. And of yeah. course, did, didn't Alexander also do uh, the first Reese Witherspoon comedy? Yeah, uh, which is a brilliant uh, election. And election. I, asked, I asked him uh, recently, apparently they're doing a sequel to that. Um, really? Yeah, which would be his first sequel. And it's... Um, uh, uh, Reese has an idea, had an idea, and then there's a book apparently that was uh, uh, based. You know, it's based on, and uh, they're hoping to do it. He said they're hoping to do it. What he wants to do next, though, and he's currently writing the script, co-writing the script with this guy David Hemmingson, who he hired to do the holdovers, is a western. So that'll be his first western uh, coming up too, um, and he's serious about doing that one. Uh, oh, that's that's great because we, we we can never have too many westerns. No, we can't. I love what I love that Western form. And every now and then they there's, a, you know, Kevin Costner, 2024. He's got, you know, two. Yeah, no, that's why he left Yellowstone, uh, mm -hmm. which is a, was a was a little bit of a cause, uh, a, a kind of a, a seismic shock because he was so <laughs> good on that show. Talk about an actor who just had to sit in a chair 
and he created the <laughs> character. He didn't have to do anything. <laughs> I know, and he got a lot of money. Um, oh, but know. Uh, you know, he's a uh, you know he he's a uh, he's an old timer. He's like us. He he likes the real deal, and he oh, and he yeah. wants to bring that back with movies. Um, when I interviewed him years ago, it was Yellowstone was in its early first or second season. And uh, I did an interview with him and I asked him about Westerns and things. And all he could do was talk about the time his father took him to see how the West was won in Cinerama. And he remembered that vividly, uh, except for one thing. He kept saying it was at the Cinerama Dome, which it has been many times. But then when he saw it, it was at the old Stanley Warner Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. That oh, is, isn't that also called the Pantages or is that a different theater? No, that's different. It became the Hollywood Pacific uh, oh. Theater. And it was the only one equipped to show Cinerama. And so uh, that is where all the Cinerama travelogues played and uh, the two um, real Cinerama uh, narrative movies, uh, How the West Was Won, and the other one was The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. Right, which I finally saw recently and really loved it. Oh, you did? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, those are great. Let me pop up another slide here, because this is another movie that's getting some attention, which is American Fiction. Great movie. Uh, which I'm also hearing good things about. You should be hearing good things about it. It's Cord Jefferson wrote it and directed it. It's based on a book. And he just like got att attracted to the book, which is about this guy, another curmudgeonly kind of guy, an intellectual, played by Jeffrey Wright, who's written all these books. And he's frustrated because they're always in the African-American studies section, even though they have nothing to do with that and things. But because he's a black writer, that's where they put him. And he's frustrated because the only books that sell about the black community and things uh, are stereotypical. And, um, you know, one of them that he points out is called We Who Does Live in the Ghetto. Uh, <laughs> and it becomes a bestseller, you know, and he's so frustrated that he decides he's going to write one basically as a joke and, you know, and try to show people this. And it becomes a smash hit. And, uh, you know, and then he's stuck. And so he has to actually take on the character of this author who may have written this book and you know all of a sudden everyone's excited about him and uh and it's also about his family and a lot of stuff it has a lot of serious things in it too so it, it totally it's a very difficult movie to pull off it's pure satire in the best billy wilder fashion but it's also a real family story of of his life and um, and his girlfriend too. Great great cast: Sterling K. Brown, Tracy Ellis Ross, Erica Alexander, Leslie Uggams plays their mother. She's fantastic. Uh, it's uh, won the uh, audience prize at the Toronto Film Festival, which is a big uh, harbinger of success at the Oscars. So I'm hoping this one uh, gets a lot of attention awards wise, and mm -hmm. and that'll bring people into it um, and to see it because it's. One of the smarter movies out there right now. I remember um, interview. Not interviewing. I remember the opening scene in um, Albert Brooks's movie Lost in America, oh, where yeah. Re Rex Reed is talking about being a film critic and how he, you know, he uh, 
he goes to these screenings and he talks about the fact that the studios bring all the uh, the secretaries out to fill up the audience. And he, <laughs> he says, uh, I don't need, if a movie's funny, I'm all by myself, I'll laugh. Right. So, so my question to you as a film critic, what's your ideal uh, venue to watch a movie in? Or is it uh, in a screening room just by yourself or would you no. like to see it in a big audience? Well, first of all, my ideal venue which I get a lot now because people send links, you know, and, and uh, directors. I, I, when I talk to directors, I often tell them this too. You'd be horrified if you saw the way I saw your movie, you know, uh, but it's, they'll sometimes send you a link, uh, not on the big, big movies, but on a lot of movies that you, you review and they have your name plastered across the middle of it. Cause they think you're going to sell it to China or something. And uh, sometimes they have things <laughs> in the upper right-hand corner too. And then they always have a counter in the left-hand corner, a lot of them. And, uh, you know, sometimes they'll have your name and then they'll take it off and then they'll put it on and then they'll take it off and then they'll put it on. You know, I watch, I get so confused sometimes I'm watching this, I'm saying, oh my God, I'm in this movie. I have something to do with this movie. You know, <laughs> I forget. You just keep seeing your name over and over watching a movie. So that's really tough to do. And uh, I, I don't like watching a lot of links, but I have a big TV. So sometimes the only way to go, I watch a great one. It's coming out uh, in January um, this month uh, called Driving Madeline, uh, Madeline, uh, about a 92-year-old woman on her way to a, an old person's home to live because they won't let her live in her house anymore. And the taxi driver who's taking her and she takes him on detours through the Paris of her younger days. And... Um, it's so good, but I watched that on my um, link here. Now, again, I wish I'd seen it in a theater, but at least they didn't have my name plastered on this one. And I really like that movie, but I digress. So I like uh, theaters. I like big theaters. I like seeing it with audiences. I love seeing comedy with audiences. I saw The Hangover at Warner Brothers once in a room five there, and there were like three people at 10 in the morning, not a, not many at that particular screening. I did not like that movie. I, I thought, oh, I don't know. I went to see it again because my wife wanted to see it after it opened. I went to see it. It was another movie to me. I saw it with an audience. I, I you know, comedy needs, you know. Not only comedy. I had an experience where I was in Europe in the summer of 77. And of course, everybody was talking about Star Wars. So we <laughs> flew back to Chicago because uh, I, uh, I had to catch a, a, a separate flight to L.A. And I arrive in a Chicago theater midweek, one of the big movie palaces downtown, four people in the theater. I'm watching Star Wars and I just didn't get it. Yeah. So I, I come back to L.A. I go to the Chinese on Saturday night, packed. They're screaming at the theater, the screen when, when the Millennium Falcon goes to light speed. The whole audience rose and started applauding. And then the music, just everything popped. It was a different movie. It's a different movie, you know. And that was at a time that changed movies, too. Because once they discovered that that's what the audience wanted, that there was a whole audience out there that they never even had, uh, you know, they started doing Star Wars over and over again and movies like it and copying it. And that's that's all part of that. I do remember when that movie came out in 1977, 20th Century Fox had so little faith in it. They were pushing the movie Sidney Sheldon's The Other Side of Midnight, which was their big movie for the summer 
uh, early summer, and that's the one they thought was going to be the hit. That flopped, and Star Wars, the rest is history. So That was also the great summer of The Spy Who Loved Me, which oh, turned yeah. James Bond upside down and really rocketed it to new, new levels. That's for sure. Yeah, you That's can't go sure. wrong with James Bond. What's happening? Are we going to have another one? You know all this stuff. Huh? Well, I always say that there are three things certain in life, death, taxes, and James Bond movie. <laughs> you There's hope. no question. Although Barbara Broccoli is taking her own sweet time on determining <laughs> who the next James Bond is. I often think because she's such an eclectic person that she wants to do other things than Bond. But yeah. just like Sean Connery, who ended up leaving the series because the Bond movies took up just way too much of his time. He had to spend six months on a Bond movie that I think Barbara is probably feeling that pressure, but she's done other things. They haven't been successful, but they're interesting. I think she did the the Gloria Graham biopic, which I did not see. Oh, with Annette Benning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was really good. That's a small, small film. She also did... Um... Oh, my God. The movie last year, too, about the young black boy that was murdered. And, uh, you know, um, I mean, she does a lot of really fine little independent movies. Right. And right. Like that. But um, and she got actually she got MGM to do that film with her, though, because of the uh, the bond thing. That of course, it helps that she's making them billions. Yeah. <laughs> um Speaking of Annette Benning, and by the way, it was Daniel Del Deadweiler who starred oh. in that film, who should have been nominated for a lead actress and didn't get a nomination. And it's a shame because uh, she was so good in it. But that was Barbara Broccoli's uh, movie, and it was very good. So speaking of Annette Benning, Annette Benning is getting a lot of attention for playing uh, the swimmer in, uh, is it pronounced Nyad? Nyad, Diana Nyad, yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about that one. Well, she, of course, is a Olympic uh, world-class swimmer, was, and uh, now uh, uh, in age 60, I think it was, decided to do something she failed in her younger days of doing, was swimming from Miami to Cuba, doing that straight there, and uh, could never do it, never pull it off. And so at 60, after being out of the swimming business, as it were, for 30 years, she was a... a sportscaster for ESPN and different things uh, she did in her career, Diana Nyad decided I'm going to do it. And uh, so this is the movie uh, about that. It starts when she's 60 and has this dream to uh, finish something she started uh, at, at a much younger age. And uh, Jodie Foster is great playing Bonnie, who's her uh, coach and best friend. And Annette Benning is spectacular, really throws herself into this in every which way. It's directed, co-directed by uh, Elizabeth Shai Bassarelli and Jimmy Chin, who are a husband and wife documentary making team. And they did uh, Free Solo, you know, Climbing the Mountain that won the Oscar and all of that. Uh, this is their first narrative movie. And they did a good job with it. It's very entertaining and you know, it's intense, man. This woman is not totally likable. You know, she's really going to do this at the cost of all of her friends and everyone else. Uh, she's going to make this happen. And uh, it's about determination and a lot of things. And Benning, you know, she's never won an Oscar. Hillary Swank beat her twice. But, <laughs> I, you know, the first time I saw her, I really appreciate her. I'm sure it's the same with you, was that wonderful role she had in an American president opposite Michael Douglas. 
they were such good to they were so good together oh she's great in everything the grifters Grifters, um, sure american beauty oh yeah uh so many movies she's and that gloria graham film she was really good in um but naiad's good it's on netflix you can easily see it um and uh we'll see what happens with it though there's a lot of competition uh in both the lead and supporting actress categories so uh, who's your who's your favorite choice at the moment for lead actress um uh, prediction or or who i think um, I, well i i'll go with your thinking because you have good thinking yeah well personally I, I i first of all i'd love to see annette benning win it finally because she has and a lot of times i just love to see these people that actually have deserved it done performance after performance even if it's not their greatest performance where they might have won for something else you know jimmy stewart uh won for the philadelphia story in 1940 which was nice uh nice comedy and he's good in it but it's not really what you think of as an oscar best actor but the year before he had lost for mr smith goes to washington so i think they gave it to him for that same with betty davis she was ignored for a human bondage so they gave it to her for a, a movie called dangerous which was not even on that level but that happened a it's lot. funny you should mention of human bondage because in catching up with movies i'd never seen